Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Is the government really covering up UFO evidence? Why do some of the media ridicule UFO experiences? Is there really an ET presence among us? Well, welcome to the 656th edition of Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of the historic Exeter Town Hall. And for the first time in the history of our show, we have a live audience, as you could hear. They're good at that, aren't they? On the panel today are legendary UFO researchers, speakers, and authors. We have Richard Dolan, I hope. Yes, there he is. Okay. Kathleen Martin, Denise Stoner, Stephen Matherlise, Peter Robbins, Ryan Mullahay. That is correct, isn't it? Ryan Mullahay. And the great folks from Seacoast Saucers of New England, Chuck Rateau, Mike Stevens, and Valerie LaFazzo-Roy. And we also have a very surprise guest, Travis Walton from Arizona, the subject of the great film Fire in the Sky and the book as well. And we were really surprised. We're really happy to welcome Travis and all our other guests. Okay. Because we only have an hour, we will not be able to take phone calls on this show, but many listeners have sent questions, and we will take audience questions beginning now. Okay, we have our first questioner. Uh, can Richard or anybody, you, Paul, can speak about the Mandela effect, please? Uh, I had a couple of individuals asking me recently about the Mandela effect, so if you're not familiar with that, essentially... I'm, I'm Richard Dolan. Uh, so the Mandela effect is um, an idea, it's based on the man, Nelson Mandela. We've all heard of him. And the idea of the Mandela effect is that somehow our reality that we live in is a different reality. Or the memories that we have of the past have, uh, are dealing with a different reality. So reality um, changes. And... Um, it's not, not explained as well. So, the, like, if something happened in the past, you remember it differently than it actually happened, because somehow our, our reality, has, our past, is being changed right in front of us. And, and there are people who claim to remember things differently than they're supposedly remembering them now. This is the, and the reason that it's called the Mandela effect is because supposedly, according to one person who did their research, they had heard a news story that Nelson Mandela had died in prison, in while in South Africa. And then in our timeline, Nelson Mandela did not die in prison and eventually was released in prison and, um, and became, you know, legend and hero of South Africa. Uh, I'm not a believer in the Mandela effect. Uh, and furthermore, I think that uh, this is just me. Other people can disagree. So the individual who made the claim about the Mandela effect said, well, he had supposedly uh, died in the 1970s in the South African prison. And my immediate thought was, does this person never, had never heard of Stephen Biko? I mean, my goodness, Peter Gabriel wrote a song about Stephen Biko in 1980. Stephen Biko was a great South African political prisoner. He was an activist, and he was beaten to death. 
in a South African prison in the 70s. And he was the other famous South African political prisoner. Uh, there are other, uh, there's websites on the Mandela effect. You can go look it up. People who are talking about our, you know, past is different than how we now remember it. Um, I, I need a little bit more evidence than has been presented for me to be a believer in this. I think that a lot of people just don't remember their history very well. It's my opinion. Thank you, Richard Dolan. Anyone else like to address that question? I, I'm not going to answer a lot of questions. I've done enough yakking this weekend as it is, and I'll just uh, manage the show. Anyone else like to respond to the question on the Mandela effect? Okay. All right, well, I guess not. Uh, do we have a further question? Okay, y- young lady, if you'd kindly walk up to the microphone. That's it. And we have a pretty good, pretty good audience today here at the Exeter Town Hall. Really Hi, my good. name is Gail, and I, I think this question is pretty appropriate considering this, uh, a diverse, there's a diverse um, uh, audience here at the, at the uh, podium. Not the po- yes, a um, little nervous here. Um, Denise Stoner said something very, very important that touched me. Uh, and I just and I thought of the UFO researchers, experiences, abductees, and um, wanted your thoughts on this. She said that I feel I have something to tell mankind. And I thought of uh, all the researchers that I have met thus far in the books that I'm reading, and I and I feel that it it has to be happening to you folks too. And I just wanted your thoughts on that. And also, she also followed up with saying that. Um, she just can't recall what it is and that when she does experience that, she starts feeling pain. And I also, I experienced that too and it really touched me on a soul level when she said that and I feel that's why I'm also drawn to you folks in this research. I've been brought into this field probably about four or five years ago working with my dreams and I just wanted your thoughts on that, folks. Okay, thank you very much. Well, we'll turn the mic over to Denise Stoner and Kathy Martin. Denise, why don't you begin, since you were addressed in the question. I did mention that fact, and there are an awful lot of us who do feel they have something to say to mankind, and it's locked up somewhere. Perhaps we are due to bring it out all together, and I think it's going to be very important, not unkind, not dangerous, but very important for our well-being. Just my feelings. The majority of experiencers that I have spoken with uh, have the same thoughts. My name is Kathleen Martin. And the reason that I do this is that I feel compelled to tell the truth and to back it up with the evidence that what I'm saying is true. The reason for that is there has been a tremendous amount of distortion related to the Betty and Barney Hill case and to other cases as well. Uh, Sometimes the general public uh, becomes unaware of what actually happened. They are not able to separate fact from fiction because of this campaign of distortion and disinformation. I have the archival evidence. I have investigated these cases, and I feel compelled to let the American public know what the truth is and to make the documents indicating what is true available. Thank you, Kathleen Martin. And to continue an answer here, we're going to turn the mic over to Peter Roberts. 
I'm an investigative writer specializing in the subject of UFOs, but I became involved in this subject uh, literally overnight, 40 years ago, when one of my sisters told me about memories of being on board a craft. That was a very challenging moment in my life. I became obsessed with the subject and had the good fortune shortly thereafter to meet uh, another painter. I was a painter at the time. Uh, with a profound interest in the subject. His name was Bud Hopkins. And over the course of our 35-year friendship, I worked as his assistant and confidant for about half of that time. During that period, I helped to investigate literally hundreds of claims, literally uh, the huge majority working out to seemingly be authentic. Bud approached it from the point of view of somebody with tremendous intellectual curiosity, but also as a humanist. People that have been through this, especially early on, when the ridicule factor was even higher than it is now, many of them lived and still live with this as the deepest secret of their life. They are afraid of coming forward, ridicule being very powerful, and as he used to point out very bluntly, to have gone through this experience, especially if it were traumatic for you, and then to have the courage to come forward and have people make fun of you was something akin to the experience of having been raped and then having people make fun of you for it. I follow in his footsteps when I continue to investigate abduction cases or put myself at the service of people that have had these experiences, not because I am obsessed with getting the answers to the what and how and why and why it's happening, although I feel that the abduction experience is not only central to the UFO experience. It is the most complex, most disturbing, and potentially most important aspect of the whole subject of UFOs. I do it because I feel it's very important work, and it's something that I can be of service in. Uh, thank you, Peter Robbins. Now we have another questioner. Sir, if you would uh, state your question as briefly as possible. Uh, <clears throat> my name is Bill, and I was just wondering, with all the abductions, has there ever been any murders of uh, earthlings? Uh, and if so, are they older people or younger people? Okay, who would want to take that one? Peter Robbins, once again. Over the many years I worked with Bud and in my own investigation since, I have never come upon a confirmed case of anybody being murdered in the course of or related to the abduction phenomena. That's my experience. Okay. Thank you, Peter. Anyone else uh, among the speakers? Travis Walton. Well, the question might have addressed uh, in connection with in what respect? Uh, murdered by the aliens or murdered by people interested in covering something up? That That's a whole different question. <laughs> Very good. Uh, Richard Dolan at the other end of the table. I don't think there are any truly confirmed cases, but there are there are stories, and you have the cases of so-called human mutilations. And in fact, uh, a couple of years ago, Travis and I did a, a, a little bit of a tele televised investigation of a of a, a sensational one uh, that took place allegedly in the state of Pennsylvania, in Kate, involving a gentleman named Todd Cease uh, in the early 2000s. Um, I, I don't really know what the true story of his case was, but it, it was grisly. 
um, and it was apparently connected possibly to a UFO sighting. Uh, there are cases of alleged human mutilations in uh, South America. There's a number of these that have been talked about. And uh, even in, in the U.S., uh, all you have is rumor, innuendo. But I, I personally do not rule any of that out, personally. Thank you, Richard. Anyone else? Okay. Next questioner, please. My name is Alex. I'm from Rochester, New Hampshire, and I'll try to keep this brief and to the point. Um, at my library, the Rochester Public Library in New Hampshire, there's a book on the shelf called The Roswell Report, Case Closed. Um, I came across it recently. Uh, it's published by, uh, it says, Headquarters, United States Air Force, 1997, uh, also by James McAndrew. Um, and it has a foreword by Sheila E. Widnall, Secretary of the Air Force. And basically, it, it, it says that Roswell was basically just, you know, the weather balloon thing that happened. Um, you know, and it has witness statements, interviews, bibliography, index, tables. Um, you know, my, my concern is if, in fact, Roswell was, in fact, uh, extraterrestrial or a, a genuine UFO from another world, for example, and I don't know, but if that is the case, and if the Air Force knows that and is deliberately lying with such publications like this, how can we trust our government? Okay. Uh, I don't want to keep answering everything. Well, that's why you're here. That's but, fine. Uh, this is Richard again. Uh, other people should chime in. I'm going to be very quick. That report is uh, 20 years old. It is absolutely a, a series of lies and deceptions by the U.S. Air Force. UFO researchers have been onto this since its publication. Uh, that report is filled with more holes than Swiss cheese. And um, uh, McAndrew, who authored it, is, uh, was at least an expert in uh, U.S. Air Force disinformation. That was part of his job. And, uh, and you can see the results of it in that book. So how can we trust the government for anything? No, you're asking, this is the exact question. You know, you cannot trust the United States military or government to speak truthfully on the subject at all. But they, they're very effective at getting their word out, aren't they? Because your book's in the library there. Okay. Thank you, Richard. Kathleen Martin. The Air Force report claimed that it was a sky hook, it was a mogul balloon train. Uh, the characteristics of a mogul balloon train are that they are the same type of uh, balloon that was sent up for, as a weather balloon, only they were strung together in a long train. They were very light. The object that crashed in Roswell left a gouge in the ground. It was not a mogul balloon train. Uh, Jesse Marcel... Uh, who was a base intelligence officer, uh, was with the 509th Air Force that dropped the bomb on Hiroshima, Nagasaki. These guys were the t at the top of their game. They had seen many, many weather balloons. It was not a weather balloon. It was deception by the Air Force in order to uh, disinform the American public, to make everything, everyone feel warm and comfortable, and to have the belief that we are not really being visited and that a UFO did not crash in Roswell. Jesse Marcel stated that when he went to Fort Worth, Texas, with the debris, 
He laid it on a table. He then went to the map room to point out exactly where in New Mexico this crashed. When he went back to the office, the evidence had been replaced with a weather balloon, with debris. Uh, it was not the truth. The Air Force was covering it up from the very beginning. They also at one point said that these were crash test dummies. Well, what was recovered uh, was very, were very different from crash test dummies. Dummies were dropped. They had to be 175 pounds. They wanted to see how uh, that would affect the human body. The Air Force, uh, people in the Air Force who were parachuting down. Uh, so they used dummies that were as tall as human men, who were the same weight as human men. How could anyone possibly mistake that for a four-foot-tall little gray alien with a big head? The, the explanation is absolutely ridiculous, and I think that's why many members of the American public don't believe the Air Force's official explanation. Thank you, Kathleen Martin and Peter Robbins. And after Peter, we'll hear from our good friend, Mr. Matherly. Let me add briefly to uh, the comments made by my friends and colleagues, Richard Dolan and Kathleen Martin. The uh, aspect that Kathleen just cited of the crash test dummies occurred in 1952, five years after the incident in question. That volume would be funny if it wasn't so incredibly insulting, and it is truly one of the most uh, specious pieces of disinformation ever published on the subject of UFOs. Hi, I'm Stephen Mather-Lees, uh, and I think it's really interesting how clumsy the Air Force and the government are at covering these things up. And the one that comes to mind for me is the one where there was a, an object pursued by, as I remember, th cars from three different police departments across five counties from Ohio into Pennsylvania. And um, they were approached later on by the guy who said he was a, 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 an Air Force colonel, and he said, well, actually, you guys have been chasing the planet Venus. And this object had occluded the planet Venus several times during the chase. <laughs> and um, if my geography is right, um, when you go from Ohio to Pennsylvania, you're traveling east. Well, if Venus was in the sky, it would have been setting, <laughs> so traveling west. So the whole thing, it's almost as if they're trying to say, well, okay, fine, guys, but don't take any notice because we're just telling you this rubbish. They're so bad at it that it, it's, hard to, it's hard to believe sometimes. Thank you, Stephen. May the lease. Okay. <clears throat> now, we have... Um, we have, I just want to take one question that came in electronically. Uh, this came over Facebook the other day, and this is from Linda in Ocala, Florida. And Linda says, uh, this question is for any of those speakers. Why do UFOs always use brilliant lights? Is it, it is like they want to be seen and is too obvious. Peter Robbins. 
uh, I'd like to thank Linda for her question and say, without question, um, UFOs don't always use brilliant lights. Sometimes there is no lighting or minimal lighting. There's almost every type of configuration and appearance imaginable associated with this truly anomalous form of unidentified flying objects. Okay. Um, any of the other speakers like to address that question? Okay, very good then. All right. Uh, we have a break in about four minutes, but we have time, I think, for one. Oh, no break. Oh, okay. You tell me I'm the host, right? Okay, what do I know? All right. Anyway, well, so good. We'll cruise right through. Um, anyone else, as I say, from the audience who may have a question? Sure. All right, sir, please um, feel My free to state John your Michael question from, briefly. From Keene, and uh, this has to do with disclosure. Uh, Richard, I know you're talking about your book about uh, various scenarios, full disclosure, partial disclosure, false disclosure. But this question is for any and all of you. Which do you see is more likely to happen? Which data points do you see most significantly supporting that argument? And what do you see coming next within the scenario you believe is going to happen? Okay, any takers? Peter Robbins? A number of countries, the United Kingdom, some South American countries, um, have declassified documents. In the case of the United Kingdom, uh, they were posted on an official aspect of the Ministry of Defense website. Uh, they did it for a number of years. They stopped. Uh, there was a fair amount of interesting smoke, no smoking gun. Um, but I think it was good public relations. It certainly wasn't a bad thing to acknowledge that they took it seriously. I think in this country, the dream of the President of the United States, whomever it might be, whatever party they might be associated with, going on television some night and saying, my fellow Americans, it's my solemn duty, blah, 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 is never going to happen unless it is in coordination with every other world leader, the United Nations, the military-industrial complex, leaders of world religions, scientists, um, mental health professionals, etc. No one individual can do it. In this country, though, I think they're recalcitrant. I don't think we will ever see an official disclosure moment come unless their hand is forced. By what? Who knows? Maybe some kind of major WikiLeaks situation, maybe uh, major media having the courage to cover brilliant first-rate photographs of anomalies on the moon. Um, but I, what I see and I remember discussing this some years ago with Richard Dolan, that disclosure is happening now. It's inevitable. We are part of it right here in this room. It is not happening geometrically in the form of some great uh, uh, anti-Vietnam War movement, as originally dreamt of by my dear friend and colleague Stephen Bassett, but it is happening one, two, seven people at a time. I can tell you, as somebody that works events like this regularly here and abroad, every year, more and more people care less and less what other people think about what they think about the subject. That's important. But we are still a relative minority in the population. You need a critical mass within any population to change things. We are still far from it. Uh, and I'll pass the mic on to any of my colleagues that want to follow up. Now, uh, Richard Dolan will address the question. Uh, I just, this is Richard, and I'll, uh, I'll just agree with uh, Peter. For the most part, I agree totally with Peter. Um, I would add a few things that, um, 
So I think that we are in a very revolutionary period of our history. Uh, this is not the 1990s. So we've got the web, we've got social media, we have YouTube, we have Skype, we have everything that allows us to communicate with each other. And that's causing a groundswell of uh, pressure from below. That's why I think we're now seeing even people like Hillary Clinton go on the Jimmy Kimmel show to talk about UFOs or UAP, as she called them. Um, on the other hand, we have an ossified, calcified, concretized political establishment. Uh, the United States is the global hegemon. Uh, the, where I would quibble with Peter is I don't believe the United States cooperates with any other nation. The United States, I'm serious, so the United States seeks to dominate. Uh, the U.S. has vassal countries. They're called Great Britain. They're called NATO. They're called uh, any other nation that, does, that is under the U.S. Uh, intelligence community uh, control. The only nations outside that, the only major nations, are Russia and China and Iran and a few others. That is why the U.S. is seeking to undermine and, and take them down through a regime change. Um, I recently uh, made a, did an interview where I, I said, I was kind of off the cuff, but I agree with it, what I said, is that I hope, uh, I hope Obama doesn't do disclosure. I hope Putin beats him to it. I would actually like to see Russia or China beat the United States to disclosure. And the reason is that uh, the United States, and I think Peter's exactly right, will never do an honest disclosure of the UFO subject uh, even if the U.S. government is pushed to the wall with some kind of leak, with some kind of sighting, it will never be an honest disclosure. Uh, they, will, they will do it one day, though. Uh, and if you can imagine the classified world with a mountain of UFO data that is available to them, and undoubtedly they have it, all right, of every nuance, of every type of information, uh, the danger of an American-led disclosure is that it will be highly selective and it will be it will be spun and propagandized in such a way that benefits them. Uh, and my prediction is that if they ever were to do it, and this is an if, and it won't happen for a few years, it will be done in such a way as to maximize fear, not through the roof, but just enough so that it would justify greater measures for uh, the encroaching police state, which is all around us anyway. So my fear is that disclosure will be, could be a kind of false flag, as it were. Um, not, not lies, but, but selectively spun. Um, having said that, I don't think that there will be a disclosure of any sort by any U.S. Uh, official before uh, the election or even for a while. And the only other thing I would say is these releases of data by other governments uh, are not disclosure. Uh, anything that the U.K. government does in this is... Uh, is is deception as well. The UK government is utter, utterly dishonest when it comes to the UFO subject. And when they re release their alleged classified files, uh, they're, they're very, very selective about it as well. They're never to be trusted. Um, some governments will release their data, but that's not the same as disclosure. Thank you, Richard Dolan. Now we go to Peter Robbins. Two very brief follow-up points. Uh, in no way is Richard view is Richard's view in, con in conflict with mine. I was speaking hypothetically. There's no way we are ever going to coordinate this with other countries and agencies. Um, also, the documentation that has been released, primarily and most uh, visibly by the British government, has been so low-level and so innocuous that really its main purpose is public relations. Look at us. We're liberal. We're releasing documents that mean nothing, that prove very little. Hi, this is Stephen May, the Lees again. Um, a point I want to make is 
I'm just noticing how often the word fear shows up in what in the discussion and our responsibility is to be fearless and just speak out and not be subdued by these guys. All right, very good. Thank you, Stephen. Now we go to Travis Walt. Um, there's a, a whole other side to the disclosure question, and that's uh, on the part of the aliens. Uh, you know, so the skeptics are fond of saying, well, if there was anything to this, they would land in the middle of the Super Bowl or on the White House lawn. And that's not happening. And uh, I think for a reason. Um, if you look at the other end of the spectrum, uh, beings with this level of technology... I believe, are capable of doing everything they're doing here and remain completely undetected. There would be no ufology. I think the amount of uh, sightings, contact, interaction that we're have, having is kept at a sort of a minimal level, always just short of the kind of thing that would be the equivalent of disclosure for a reason, our own good. You know, in science fiction, you know, the, the prime directive, the non-interference directive makes sense, you know, to, to have that kind of open, here we are kind of a thing. I mean, the people in this room would be, hey, deal with it, they'd take it in a stride. But, you know, uh, the general public uh, would respond in a way that I think would be massively destructive and disruptive. And so... Uh, it's probably in our interest that they aren't making anything more than this sort of uh, calculated, measured um, exposure of themselves um, as a sort of a gradual conditioning um, to get us ready for something that we're not ready for. So on the part of the governments of the world, it's possible that aside from their own self-interest and uh, nefarious motives, uh, they also recognize the massive disruption that would ensue with uh, open acknowledgement of this reality that we're not alone. All right. Uh, thank you, Travis Walton. Okay, I believe we have some more audience questions. Sir, if you'd step up to the microphone. Hi, I'm Henry. So my question is a two-part question, one to Richard and then one to the panel. The first part is, Richard, if you could address what happened in Florida with George Herbert Walker Bush earlier this year during a campaign stop where his outburst was recorded or uh, heard uh, by a group of people. And then the second part is um, at Roswell. We always talk about Roswell. Weren't there two crashes at Roswell? Didn't the fire control take out one and one of the crafts bumped into the other? And why do we always focus on one craft when it really was much bigger than that? Thank you. Thank you. This is Richard. I'll let someone else de deal with the Roswell question. The, briefly, with uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, as George Bush Sr., who I believe is now 113 years old, um, I think. He's, he's getting up there. So he was doing a campaign thing for his son. Um, this is for Jeb Bush, I think, right? Yeah. So when Jeb Bush was in the primaries... And uh, George Bush Sr. And someone in the audience, I'm, this is going off of memory, but I, I'm sure we all remember this, asked George Bush Sr. about the UFO ET phenomenon. 
and was very direct about it. And Bush, on stage, he, he is in his 90s, um, he said um, something like, uh, something like the, can someone uh, uh, clarify for me? He, the public doesn't have a right to know about it. Or what? He said, <laughs> you, right out of the movie, you can't handle the truth. And then, and then the guys in the black suits and the sunglasses uh, took him away, I think, right? They, they, uh, they moved him off the stage. And, and all you get in the media is this little, uh, you know, lame follow-up. Like, oh, you know, he's, he's getting a little old there. He's getting a little up there. You can't really take what he says seriously. B.S. Clearly, that is, that is a load. So, yeah, I think, I think this is a case where this is a man who um, absolutely, if every indication, every genuine inside source, uh, one that I personally spoke to who was high-level retired CIA, confirmed individual, also said this to me that George Bush Sr. absolutely knew. And um, uh, this is a man who was briefed, uh, Danny Sheehan, a, a great lawyer, uh, talked at length about it in the 1970s, how he knew firsthand how George Bush, CIA director, refused to brief Jimmy Carter, president-elect, on this because Carter uh, didn't have a need to know and Carter was not going to retain Bush on as CIA director. There's a lot more to say about this, but yeah. Thank you, Richard. Anyone else care to? Oh, Peter. Peter Robbins. You didn't ask, but I'm going to give you a postscript to that question. Uh, in 2000, I was a columnist for UFO magazine, the one published in America, not the U.S. And when George Bush Jr. was campaigning for president, there came a time when a gentleman who was a minister in the community who had gotten into the church for this town meeting asked the question uh, about UFOs. He was not answered, but he did run into Bush with Cheney in the hallway after he had managed to get in there. And he asked him once again. Bush smiled at him and said, uh, my vice president knows all about it. He'll deal with it when we get, when we get into office. And, of course, nothing happened. Um, <laughs> and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Peter Roberts. Uh, anyone else? Okay. Next question, please. Oh, no one addressed the... Uh, Kathy, would you care to take the Roswell part of that question? Kathy Martin. This is purely speculation, but uh, the an original evidence, the original report in the Roswell Daily Record uh, stated that a flying disc had been recovered, that it had crashed on the property, uh, and then... The, the story was emptied later that day with a cover story. The first story went out uh, around the western United States. It appeared in several newspapers. Uh, the second part of it uh, does not have that level of evidence. It's more based upon eyewitness testimony uh, and uh, de denial by members of the Air Force. Uh, it appears that it is true that there was... Uh, a second crash, or perhaps part of the first craft, ended up in another location. But uh, there has also been controversy about who is telling the truth and who is embellishing the truth on that as well. So I think that probably, and this is just speculation on my part, that it is that there was more evidence connected to uh, the debris field rather than a crash site 
where perhaps alien bodies were recovered. And when you're talking about alien bodies, uh, that's another level of uh, questioning uh, that we don't have firm information on, that we don't have firm evidence on, even though the Air Force uh, had asked Glenn Dennis at the funeral home uh, if they had caskets the size of uh, children. And, but it's based upon a lot of speculation of connecting information together, more speculation than uh, in the first report released by the Air Force. Thank you, Kathy Martin. And if I may just ask, we've had a request that the speakers hold the mic a little bit closer to their, their um, mouths when you speak. Thank you. All right, we have uh, another questioner from the audience. Please step forward. Uh, my name is Phil. I'm from Massachusetts. Um, long before we had Edward Snowden and WikiLeaks and Julian Assange, we had a, uh, a gentleman named Gary McKinnon, um, who fought extradition and was engaged in quite a quite a legal battle. But I think one of the gists of um, his material, he spoke of or he wrote about uh, we having a maybe a military force already either in space or space-bound and we're doing other off-planet things. I just wanted to get an idea from the panel what they thought of it, what they knew of it, what they might have heard otherwise, anything to support or kind of refute these, uh, these uh, claims. Thank you. Okay, Richard Dolan. Uh, this is Richard. Yes, Gary McK I'm sure some other people on this panel have corresponded and talked with Gary. I have. And um, if, if you haven't heard, so in the late 90s, Gary McKinnon was very fascinated by UFOs and, and in the UK and got into the U.S. Space Command website and saw uh, references to what was called opera, uh, Project uh, Solar Warden, Operation Solar Warden, I think. And um, also references to what were called non-terrestrial officers, essentially references to a, a clandestine U.S. space fleet. Um, he also saw images. He was not able to get screenshots. This was the 90s and uh, was not really able to record it. Um, some people can choose not to believe him, but the fact is that in the immediate aftermath, he was, um, the U.S. has uh, attempted extradition of him for, many, for a decade, really trying to ruin his life. Um, I, there's no question in my mind Gary McKinnon is telling the truth and that he probably did indeed see evidence of a, of a clandestine space program. That's my opinion. Um, and that, that's one of, I think he is, he's a genuine whistleblower in the sense that he is a confirmable in, individual. Some of the people who, in my, this is me, other people may disagree, who are, are alleged whistleblowers today, who will talk about secret space programs and the like, none of these individuals, in my view, are confirmable in any way. Not one of them. But Gary McKinnon is confirmable. He has a genuine past, a genuine history, and, um, and what he found is, I think, legitimate. Thank you, Richard Dolan. Our next questioner, please, from the audience. Yes, hi. Um, and anybody can answer this. Um, <clears throat> what do you feel is the connection between the ET phenomenon and this world elite um, possible organization or collection of organization that goes back to at least the 1800s, maybe before, that, you know, has connected to the banking families and maybe some kind of religious cultism. What is, how does this all fit together? Because to me, I see a big puzzle piece all fitting together, and I'm just wondering your thoughts on that. 
Anyone care to address that? Uh, Richard, you're the you're the man. You're the man today. All right, thank you. Okay. This is Richard. I don't like answering all the questions. I was going to take a bathroom break, and I can't. I will leave this for other speakers as well. Um, I think your question is fascinating, um, and uh, this is something that I, I wonder about probably every single day. Like. We have a we have a hierarchy in this world. There are, there is a human elite that uh, is above law, that is above nations, that is probably even above the transnational corporations that they own. I I believe is and I and I uh, believe as you seem to that this goes back a long long way. Um, there's a number of really interesting studies. Jim Mars uh, years ago wrote a great book called Rule by Secrecy, which is a wonderful study on this. And even before that um, is a book that I finally read late in life by uh, Manly P. Hall, The Secret Teachings of the Ages, which is an esoteric analysis of ancient religious traditions going back thousands of years. And what, what he pointed out is that there has always been a clique that has had access to esoteric spiritual knowledge the way Hall wrote it back in the 1920s is that it was all connected with the immortality of the soul. Um, and that they would guard their secrets, you know, exoteric and esoteric traditions. So I think that there's always been this, this knowledge or alleged knowledge that elites believe they have. And uh, it goes through the ages. What is the connection with E.T.? That I don't know. All I can do is guess as well as anyone else. But um, there is... Uh, reason to wonder if these other beings have their fifth column, let's put it that way, in our civilization. If, if it were my job to do counterintelligence on behalf of the human race, I could say this is a question I would be asking. To what extent is there a fifth column? Thank you, Richard Dolan. Peter Robbins? Uh, thank you for that wonderfully disturbing question. Uh, if this were 20 years ago or so, I would have, you know, kept a straight face, but I would have kind of laughed inside at your naivety of uh, accepting this paranoid, lunatic uh, conspiracy fantasy. At the same time, at this point, I realize that literally anything and anything is possible. There have always been ruling leads going back millennia and traditions that are passed forward. The power of secret societies. Um, I remember how disturbed I was uh, when in the election where um, – who's our, our current secretary um, – the secretary of state uh, – yeah. Um, when he essentially deferred to Bush, they were both members of Skull and Bones. And, you know, um, my sense was he was told, you know, defer to George Bush, and he did. Um, what is going on behind the scenes is almost always more than what any of us can imagine – I have no idea, like Richard, uh, about where other intelligences, I've never been comfortable with the term aliens, um, enter into this picture. But if there's even a small percentage of a chance, we have to keep part of ourselves open, no matter how anxiety-provoking it is, to um, the possibility. That's all I had to say about that. Thank you, Peter Robbins. Just in deference to our wonderful local audience here in the beautiful state of New Hampshire, I wanted to get our other speakers who are more local folks uh, in on this because we had a number of questions that I boiled down into one brief question. And that is, can you, from Seco Saucers of New England, Chuck Rateau, and Ryan Mullahay from the uh, UFO researchers here in Rhode Island, in Rhode Island sorry, Force of Habit uh, in New Hampshire, 
just give us a brief update on what is going on UFO-wise in New Hampshire. Uh, Ryan, we'll begin with you. Um, I tend to typically do mostly historical research, so as far as more modern cases... What used to go on? Um, um, as, can you can kind of give me a little bit more? Well, for example, we, we, were, to- we were talking uh, last night about uh, the area of Franconia Notch. Uh, just w- wonderful things that have happened there. And certainly, Kathy, we can get you in on this because you were the niece of Betty and Barney Hill. You know, the, the uh, first major publicity uh, received by an abduction in this situation. So we can get to that as well. Well... B- what I can say is New Hampshire does have a rich history of sightings, and it also has a rich history of police and military sightings, which is unique about New Hampshire. Um, there's a high high amount of military sightings in the Project Blue Book files on New Hampshire, and from the 60s all the way up to the 80s, there's been a number of sightings by police officers and sightings that have been taken seriously and invested, investigated by police officers. So that's one thing I think that that sticks out for New Hampshire as far as UFOs, that there's been a lot of very credible military and police sightings. Thank you, Ryan. Now over to Charles Griteau of Seacoast Saucers of New England. Thank you very much. Um, So part of what our organization does is we believe in kind of a grassroots effort in order to start bigger conversations around these topics. And one thing that comes up in a lot of our meetup groups is why is it that so many people are having experiences around the Exeter area and why so many people around the White Mountains? And it's been a constant, uh, it's been a constant barber, and I brought this up with you, Kathy, a few times about what is with these two areas in New Hampshire? Um, I don't know if I have the answer to that. If I had the answer to that, I could probably write my own book and probably have a better place up here. But I do take a lot of informal reports from people, and it seems to be two really major hubs. I would almost argue that uh, west of Exeter, you see a larger cluster of people that have these experiences. Um, the other area is obviously the White Mountains around Ossipee Lake, where uh, for some reason around these bodies of waters, uh, you see uh, sighting after sighting uh, by people over the summertime especially. Uh, what's interesting about uh, that area specifically is you have lakes that are almost bottomless. People uh, have tried to get uh, readings on where these lakes end in Wanapasaki and they can't find them. That's also around the same area which was the dormant volcano that carved out a lot of what we see here in New England. So a lot of theories around that stuff. Uh, in terms of the groups and what people bring, we see uh, people coming into our, our groups that have had encounters that have various stories all the time. Um, ultimately, what we like to do is really encourage people to talk about these things, and they can be everything from spiritual encounters that people have uh, that they don't know of reductions or not to just general sightings. And one thing I can say about this area is uh, we are not at a lack of having encounters here at all. It's been a very uh, popular state. Thank you, Chuck. And Kathy, if you'd, I'm sure for the, the benefit of our listeners around the world who don't know or don't know a lot about the Betty and Barney Hill experience, maybe briefly you could mention that. Okay. And I wanted to add first that uh, I also have received many reports, uh, as Chuck had stated, of UFOs uh, emerging from bodies of water. And so it makes you wonder if they're actually hiding Underneath the water, it would be, uh, they'd be a lot less visible, they'd be below the radar, rather than uh, coming in and out of our atmosphere. So they would be a lot less vulnerable to being uh, shot at. So to talk about Betty and Barney Hill, uh, they were 
returning home from a short vacation at Niagara Falls in Montreal. They were driving through upstate New Hampshire on September 19, 1961, en route to their home on the seacoast in Portsmouth. They had a close encounter with a UFO. At the closest range, uh, it was approximately 100 feet above Betty and Barney. Uh, Barney got out of the car for a better look at this craft when it shifted to an adjacent field. This was in Lincoln, about a mile south of the Indian Head Resort and across the street from uh, a gas station that now has a small UFO museum in it. Um, Route 93 was not there at that time. Barney got out of the car to look up at this craft. It then shifted location to an adjacent field. He took the binoculars, followed it into the field, trying to identify it. He was still shaking his head and saying, this is unbelievable. I don't believe that flying saucers are real. I have to attempt to identify this as some conventional craft. Uh, he was having more and more difficulty doing that because he described it as a giant pancake just hanging in the air. Uh, he, uh, it was silent. It was hovering. And then he lifted the binoculars to his eyes and he saw what he uh, originally stated with conscious continuous recall were figures who were dressed in black, shiny uniforms, who were staring back down at him, who frightened him greatly, that gave him the impression that he had to get out of there or he was going to be captured. He told the original investigator on the case from the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, Walter Webb, that these individuals were somehow not human. He felt greatly threatened returned to the car, screaming to Betty they had to get out of there or they were going to be captured. He went speeding down the highway. He noticed that the craft had shifted location to above the car as he was getting inside. He told Betty to roll down the window and look up to see if she could see it. All she saw was blackness. She was looking for lights. At that time, she rolled the window back up she and Barney heard a series of buzzing sounds striking the trunk of their vehicle. When they arrived home in Portsmouth, there were new shiny spots in the trunk that caused a compass to spin and spin, indicating a counter-rotating magnetic field. We've seen this in other cases of alien abduction since then. And they went speeding down the highway. They heard a series of buzzing sounds associated with the, the, where they found the spots. They lost track of time. They lost track of where they were. Somehow they ended up in a new location that was not on Route 3. They, this could not have happened accidentally. There was no fork in the road where they might have taken a wrong turn. Uh, it was very mysterious, very perplexing. There was physical evidence. It's all in captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience. Okay, very, very good. Thank you very much, Kathy Martin. Oh, okay, I think we have time for one very brief question from the audience. Go ahead. Okay, it wasn't going to be brief, but I have a few questions. Um, okay, well, unfortunately, we're almost out of time. Okay, so, okay. I wanted to know a little from... Kathleen, about paranormal versus ufology. You were going to mention it during your talk. But the other thing, actually, the other thing I 
wanted to get some feedback about was that several years ago, I'm now 65, and when I was 10, that's 55 years ago, I saw a UFO orbiting the moon. Now, you very seldom hear that story, but I'm sticking by what I saw. And um, it was very vivid, and I was not a liar at 10 or psychologically screwed up. So it happened, and I'd like a little feedback from anybody. Okay, very briefly, anyone? Uh, Denise? Denise Stoner. Well, we don't have a lot of time for both, but paranormal versus a UFO sighting or an abduction, I've worked in both fields. You have to separate them out. They do separate out. We have to take a look at orbs and where did they come from? Did they come from a craft? Have you got a craft outside your window that sent the orb in? Did the orb begin in your home, come from another source. There are so many things we have to look at. Um, we research that. We begin by asking questions. We ask the person to journal. We ask them to do a variety of things. So that's just briefly. Um, I believe what you said about seeing something around the moon. Again, we'd have to ask questions, ask you to do certain things, give you a little bit of homework. Again, briefly. Okay. Thank you very much, Denise. Well, folks, we're almost out of time. We do have a few announcements. But in the meantime, our wonderful speakers here at the Exeter UFO Festival. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to do our usual announcements at the end of the show here because there's no time. However... Uh, we did want to tell you that next Sunday, September 11th, Ben and I will welcome back to the show none other than Kathleen Martin and Stanton Friedman for a discussion of telling fact from fiction in the UFO field. And we leave you this afternoon with a simple but powerful thought from American author Mark Twain, never put off until tomorrow what you can do the day after tomorrow. Okay. I'm Paul Eno. Ben is in the back running this show and doing a fan fabulous job. Once again, our speakers, thank you all very, very much. Uh-oh. Oh, too soon. Okay. Well, sorry. I, I, that, that's why I went into the seminary and journalism instead of becoming a mathematician. Okay. Stephen Matherlees, very, very quickly, the title of your book, Who Designed Us? I love that. Yeah, that was my, my first book, Who the Bleep Designed Us? And it, it, it occurred to me that there are several discrepancies in... Darwin's theory and various anomalies like uh, how we have such lousy memories. That's hardly a survival trait to have a lousy memory where you can lock your keys in your car, where obviously you know you did it, but you did it. <laughs> so, and um, things like Savin syndrome, where people have incredible mental, musical, artistic, whatever capabilities with apparently damaged brains which implies that all of us have that capability, but we just don't know how to access it. And maybe that's one of the things that's coming. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, one brief announcement, too, here as well. If anyone can get down to Providence on Sunday, October 16th, join us at Roger Williams Park for the Taking Steps for Crohn's and Colitis Charity Walk. We'll broadcast live from the event at noon with investigator Shane Searway from here in New Hampshire, author William J. Hall, and who knows who else might turn up. I don't know about any aliens. To join us and the rest of the team behind the paranormal or just to donate, see the link at behindtheparanormal.com where you can also find over 600 free 
shows, recorded shows from CBS Radio, our four and a half years there, and also uh, shows way back to 98, including most of these wonderful folks here who have been on as guests from time to time. And uh, again, thank you very much. And we do suggest that you uh, check out the recording of this show, of which you were all part, and that will be uh, very shortly available, probably within the next 24 hours. And again, the site, BehindTheParanormal.com. And again, it's all free. Check it out. And you can also check out...